Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to Talking Trading 2017. I hope you had a wonderful New Year's break and you feel refreshed, invigorated and inspired for the year ahead, ready to kick some goals. I'm financial journalist Caroline Stephen. I had a fantastic New Year's break and it is so good to be back here at Talking Trading. Already we have a huge lineup of guests for this year. But our first episode kickstarts getting to know an Australian celebrity and national icon, Lane Beachley, seven-time world champion surfer. If you want to be a champion, hang out with champions, get to know their mindset, understand their psyche, hear what they did to achieve their goals and what was so different from the masses. It's a message Louise Bedford and Chris Tate often tell their mentorees. So next week, we will take a look at the markets. But for this week, we're hearing the story and the life of a champion straight from the horse's mouth. We hear how Lane overcame enormous obstacles to become the only surfer, male or female, to claim six consecutive world titles. Lane's down to earth, she's honest and she is inspiring. When I first heard her story, I found her very inspiring. Lane and I did try to hook up over Skype for this interview, but the controls weren't working her end, even though her husband was in the background frantically trying to fix things. So we had to go to phone. So the sound quality isn't quite as good. I hope you can get past that to hear Lane's message, which is so down to earth and full of inspiration. As an adjunct, I have to put in there that Lane is married to Kirk Pengilly of In Excess fame. And as such a diehard fan of In Excess, and as someone who had such a crush on Michael Hutchins for so many years, I have to say that talking to Kirk on the day was a big buzz in itself. It's like I double dipped into celebrity conversation. But talking to Lane, interviewing Lane, meant a lot to me. Lane is the girl next door from Manly, Australia, who has the grit of a tiger shark and became the world number one. I hope you enjoy her story. Lane Beachley, world champion surfer, you're regarded as the most successful female surfer in history. You won six consecutive world titles between 1998 and 2003 
and went on to win a seventh world title in 2006 before retiring from professional surfing in 2008. You're now a red-hot keynote motivational speaker and you run your own foundation aim for the stars and you're an officer of the Order of Australia. Lane Beachley, hello and welcome to Talking Trading. Hello, Caroline. Thank you for having me. Lane, how did you become a surfer? I grew up on Manly Beach, so that's a good start. My dad was a surfer, my older brother was a surfer, so and I was just naturally attracted to the ocean. So I started surfing when I was four. When you were four, barely a toddler. Yeah. Exactly. Just outside of one. When did <laughs> when did you decide you wanted to become a world champion surfer? When I was about fifteen. Um I wanted to be a world champion when I was eight. Uh, I decided when I was eight years old that I was going to become a world champion at something. But it wasn't until I was 15 that I decided that I wanted to be a world champion surfer. Why was it surfing as opposed to anything else? Uh, it was the, the, the sport that I was most attracted to. It was the one that I most looked forward to every day. And um, it was just where my passion was. You know, I Even though I played tennis and cricket and hockey and soccer, um, the one spot I just really looked forward to every weekend was going surfing and, you know, having grown up on the northern beaches of Sydney, I had the availability of, of the best surf breaks, some of the best surf breaks in the world. So I was just very fortunate because of my law of proximity that, um, I had the opportunity to grow up with, with, um, surfing pedigree and, uh, surrounded by world champions. And so, yeah, it was just the one thing I really wanted to do more than anything in the world. How does surfing make you feel when you're out in the ocean? Surfing has always made me feel really centred. Uh, I still surf every single day and um, it's how I kickstart my day. It's, I feel centred, relaxed, calm, rinses my mind, my body, my soul, g- gives me a sense of perspective um, and just brings me back to the moment. I just love how the minute I dive in the water, it just rinses all my any challenges or issues or negativity negativity away and I just feel very relaxed and, and in the moment and present and calm. You put women surfing on the map. Let's talk about the battles you had to fight with men in the waves. Yeah, it's been a challenging environment. I wouldn't say I've put women surfing on the map, but I've certainly contributed to its growth and its current um, presence. But, uh, you know, my predecessors before me did a lot of work to provide the foundation pillars that I've then capitalised on and, and taken women surfing in a whole different direction. So I'm proud of, of the opportunities I've had. I'm grateful for the challenge that I've had because I sat on the board of directors for 15 years and at the ASP and, and fought, <clears throat> fought for women's rights and increased prize money, increased events, quality of locations where they held our events, quality of surf conditions in which we surfed and competed in. Um, and it was a non-stop battle and it was it was um, a challenge that, and a, a fight or a battle worth fighting. You know? And now I see the likes of Stephanie Gilmore and Tyler Wright and Sally Fitzgibbons uh, all benefiting from, from the work that, that me and, and my peers invested into um, the constant improvement of the sport. What was some of the dialogue that went on between you and some of the guys in the waves, you know, way back 20 years ago? 20 years ago? <laughs> Um, well, the majority of the dialogue was the waves are too good for you to get out of the water, especially when I was competing. And, um, you know, they, they used to have this, the, the saying that when the waves turn to crap, let's send the girls out because that's all they deserve. And so we, we dealt with that level of hostility quite often. I mean, when I was a kid, 
um, it was more of the mindset that women are supposed to be on the beach watching the towels and the and the keys and and admiring what the boys are doing in the water. So obviously, I um, I bucked that trend and um, and entered into the lineup anyway. So, growing up in Manly and and encountering hostility and challenges and threats uh, just taught me to stand up and fight for myself in the water around the world, especially on the pro tour when it wasn't a very welcoming or encouraging profession for women. Wow. I just remember one insult that was thrown back and forth between you and a guy and the guy said, girls aren't allowed out here. And you said, then what are you doing here? Yeah, that was when I was about 15 and uh, I'd started surfing up at North Stane, which is on the northern end of Manly Beach or right in the middle actually. And it was probably one of the least welcoming places I surfed as a kid. And uh, yeah, it's when guys would harass me and paddle up to me, pull my leg rope or splash me in the face or push me off my board or, yeah, like that guy did, paddle up to me and go, you're a girl, get out of the water. And I just looked at him and went, what are you doing out here then? Because uh, I just didn't like their challenges and taunts. And there was times when I didn't have the, the confidence to stand up and fight. There was times when I had my tail between my legs and paddled in crying because it was all too hard, but that didn't happen often. All right, let's go to 1993 and 1996. You suffered two bouts of chronic fatigue syndrome, and that's an illness I've battled with in the past as well. How did it affect your surfing and your life at the time? At the time, I, I wasn't really aware of the impact of it, and it's a, a, uh, the value of reflection, especially when you, you get through something like chronic fatigue. It's a very challenging um, health issue that a lot of people may suffer from and don't even know it. In 93, it wasn't as debilitating as it was in 96. I just remember having trained very hard and I was working very hard, coming home after a contest and um, just feeling incredibly fatigued and lethargic and was lacking concentration and, and had memory relapses and just there was all sorts of things going on. So I went to a doctor and then went to a, a, a specialist and, and got some blood analysis and did some tests and they they diagnosed me with chronic fatigue. So that first bout of, in 93 was really short-lived and then in 96, that's when I had a much... Uh, severe case of it where I was um, struck down with depression and, and suicidal tendencies and just all sorts of really deep, dark negativity that I found myself in. And um, and that was because I just pretended everything was okay. And I've learned a lot from that by thinking that, you know, whenever things are going on bad in life, the worst thing you can do is pretend it's not happening. You know, you've really got to put your hand up and ask for help early so you don't suffer in silence and, and become a victim of your own circumstances. So it taught me a lot about reaching out and asking for help. And it taught me a lot about prioritizing my health and well-being and, and honoring that because uh, your health is your wealth, right? you really got to look after it. And, and I compromised it and I took it for granted and my body let me know. 1998, you became the world champion surfer. How did it feel? <laughs> you know what? When journalists used to ask me that question, I used to tell them to go back to the drawing board and come up with a better one. Because <laughs> um, just for me, having come out of the water, achieving my dreams, how do you think I feel? You know, <laughs> like, give us some adjectives. Uh, yeah, um, relieved, excited, uh, euphoric, um, very satisfied. Um, yeah, I felt. An enormous sense of relief more than anything just because I've been working 16 years for that particular moment in time. You went on to win five more consecutive world title championships. Then in 2006, you won your seventh. Was there one win that stood out the most for you in terms of personal fulfillment? 
Well, the first one obviously holds a very special place in my heart because I'd been announcing to the world since I was eight years old that I was going to become a world champion. So to substantiate that claim and fulfill my, my greatest ambition to become a world champion at the age of 26 was incredibly fulfilling. Um, and then life got a little bit more challenging. It got a bit, bit more difficult as I, I put unrealistic expectations on myself. So it wasn't until my seventh one that I truly recognize um that it can be done a different way that it can that that success um can be binary and and i up until that point i'd been just really hard on myself hard on my competitors just been really uh i i was quoted as having the compassion of a tiger shark and um, i was just really i was very fierce so my seventh one holds a very special place in my heart because i did it through ease grace and gratitude as opposed to fear Let's talk about that a little bit more. How did you treat your competitors prior to 2006? Well, I was very conditional um, with my friendship. Well, not with my friendship, but more just my my thoughts were... Well, my behaviours, which were driven by my thoughts, were just really inconsistent. So, you know, one day I'm really up and the next day I'm, I'm putting them down. Mm. And, um, and it just wasn't... It just wasn't fair. Mm. I was really hard on them and that was a reflection of or an extension of how hard I was on myself. So I was always hard on the people around me and so I made my success a lot harder than it needed to be and and I trusted in that. I trusted that success had to be hard and I achieved despite that. So I um, my life was, was full of, even though it was full of success and joy and happiness, it was also full of pain, suffering and struggle and it just made that whole six years, my six world titles, a lot more intense than it needed to be. So to come back and win in a state of love and and ease and gratitude, which is how I won my seventh one, I chose to change my mindset and I worked hard at doing that. Um, It proved to me that there's two different ways you can succeed. There's two different ways you can approach certain situations. And as we all know, it's not what happens to us, it's how we choose to respond. And I chose to respond in a different way. So how did you change your mindset in those years? I did a lot of emotional work. I, um, I basically opened myself up, became a lot more vulnerable. I, I became a more self-aware human being. I started to hold the mirror up to myself and ask myself the tough questions because the, quest- the quality of questions you ask determines the quality of your life. And it was a really a, a matter of just doing some personal reflection and just going, is this how, who you are and is this who you want to be? And at the time... I had validated myself through my success of winning world titles, but I wasn't in a state of happiness or joy, and there were so many things lacking in my life, so it was time to to change my attitude. More from Lane Beachley after the break. Do you sometimes worry that you can't pull the trigger on a trade? Market Wizard Trading Coach Van Tharp has been helping traders overcome performance issues for 30 years. He will be teaching in Singapore instead of the US this February. Go to vantharp.com. That's V-A-N-T-H-A-R-P.com. Hurry, attend while he's only a short flight away. Vantharp.com. And now back to surfing champion Lane Beachley. Okay, so let's go to 2008 when you retired and you were no longer the golden girl of the waves. There was a huge identity gap for you, wasn't there? 
Yeah, I felt like I'd lost my sense of belonging. I'd, I'd identified myself as a professional surfer for the majority of my life ever since finishing high school. So I had spent 19 years on tour as a professional surfer and seven of those years as a world champion surfer. So I'd, I had essentially um, I had identified myself as that particular person. So when I retired from the tour, I felt like I no longer had an identity. I no longer had a sense of belonging. I no, had a, I no longer had any set schedule. And, um, and yeah, I felt kind of lost. I didn't know what to do or where to go or who to talk to. (laughs) Yeah, it was, um, it was a challenging time, but it's a normal time for anyone, uh, walking away from a career they dedicated their whole life to. Was it rock bottom? No, I wouldn't say it was rock bottom, but it was very challenging. The chronic fatigue in 96 was definitely my rock bottom phase. Um, and I've had a couple of, of physical challenges throughout that phase as well, but, when I retired, it wasn't rock bottom because I didn't allow myself to hit rock bottom before I put my hand up and asked for help. I talked to people. I talked to my husband. I talked to other retired athletes. I talked, and I, of course, the one thing that kept me sane and, and satisfied in life, um, outside of just choosing to be that, is, is surfing. You know, it gives me a real sense of perspective. So at least I've been able to maintain a sense of connection with that. But it was just a matter of talking to people about it, accepting that it's a normal part of life and then choosing to do something different. So how did you rebuild yourself? I went and saw a mentor and um, started to uncover some of my self-limiting beliefs and some of the things, that the negative thoughts that I have. And then I, um, I just started focusing on self-defining and um, and then surrounded myself with like-minded people and started focusing on what I did want to do as opposed to what I didn't want to do. It took me a long time to find what my passion was and it's actually more a sense of purpose than passion. It's really important that you find your purpose because that fuels your passion and most people are looking for their passion and <laughs> wondering why they're never finding it. So I, um, I just, I kind of fell into, well, I feel I say I fell into motivational speaking, but I've been a storyteller my whole life because that's how I was able to generate sponsorship through telling stories to media and and selling my own story and sharing my own story, which then inspires others to do the same. So it's, it was a variety of things, but ultimately it came down to just talking to people and sharing my challenges with others. Is it what you always wanted to do? No, not at all. No, because wow. um, you can tell a story, can't you? You're red hot when you speak. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. I do love to tell stories. You know what? Back in 1997, year before I won my first world title, I um, I had I did this self-development course, and in it we had to write a letter to ourselves that how our life was going to look in five years' time, and you had to, of course, be as clear and visual or visceral as you can possibly be in your um, articulation of what your life will be in five years and I had written down um, where I was going to live, um, what car I'd have in the driveway, even what brand of car, what color it would be, how much light would be coming into the household, um, how often I'd be surfing, who I'd, I'd be married to someone that surfed, which I'm not but that's okay, um, I'm happy to compromise that one. Um, and then I'd also be working as a sports journalist. No, I'd be a multiple times world champion. I'd be working as a sports journalist, which would be uh, subsidizing and filling up my time in the interim until I became a motivational speaker on the world stage. So I I didn't know I wanted to be a, world, a motivational speaker. 
um, until I read that back. And in 1997, I hadn't even won a world title yet. And so I picked that back up a couple of years ago and I started to look around and I went, I am living this dream. You know, I've, I've had the most amazing house overlooking a beautiful surf spot that's full of natural light. I had the, the blue four-wheel drive in the driveway. Um, I'm married to the most amazing human being, the most amazing man, and, um, and I'm a motivational speaker. I just skipped the whole sports journalism piece. <laughs> Let's talk about <laughs> Aim for the Stars, your foundation. Tell us a little bit about yep. it. Uh, Aim for the Stars is a charity I started after winning my sixth world title. So I had the reflection of hindsight and I looked back at my career and went, wow, there was times when I was number two in the world and I was ready to quit all because I couldn't afford to go on to the next event or complete the tour. And so it was obviously a hindrance to my future success. And I thought, you know, I'll just get a real job. I've got the work ethic to do whatever I want. I'll just get a real job. So fortunately, one of my employers one night um at the Old Manly Boat Shed after my night shift, which started at 6 p.m. and finished at 3 a.m., he um, he saw how hard I was working and how much I wanted it. So he basically put his money where his mouth was and said, I believe in you and I believe you've got what it takes to achieve your dreams and he's $3,000 here to do it. So that was a catalyst moment for me. It changed my life. And and that two years later, I went on to win... No, three years later, I went on to win my first world title. And there was plenty of times between him providing me with financial support and plenty of other people for providing me with other kinds of support that enabled me to achieve my dreams. I thought, what kind of foundation can I create that prevents girls from quitting, that provides them with the support they need, not after they succeed, but before they succeed, the kind of support they need that's going to inspire them and motivate them to believe in themselves and get out of their own way and achieve their ambitions and their potential. So that's what Aim for the Stars does. It provides financial and moral support for young girls to achieve them, achieve their dreams and believe in themselves and cultivate courage and self-belief. You must have seen many amazing transformations with the young Absolutely. Women. Yeah, and it's amazing um, the transformation I see just from the moment I pick up the phone and call them to congratulate them that they're receiving a grant. You know, over the last 13 years, we've given about $900,000 worth of financial assistance to over 450 young girls and women. So... It's um it's life changing for these girls and it made me realise it takes a very small amount of effort to create a long lasting impact on someone's life. You know, we think that it has to change the world to be important, but it doesn't just have to change someone's life. It just has to give them confidence in themselves, belief in themselves, belief in their passion and their pursuit. And knowing someone like me and, and the whole foundation are behind them and then they become part of the sisterhood. And so then they become a, a network of support and friendship and understanding for each other. And that's predominantly what women need to succeed all right i'm going to ask you five questions that i often ask guests and just say the first thing that comes into your mind what could be dangerous what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given invest in real estate what's the one thing that scares you spiders how do you define success doing something you love what's your idea of freedom surfing every day what would you tell your 16 year old self get over yourself and lighten up what three pieces of advice would you like to leave our listeners with three pieces of advice i'd love to give your listeners number one is if you're listening to this to inspire you to succeed um if i have the opportunity to inspire you then you can inspire yourself 
So I inspire you or encourage you to get some clarity around what you want. And it doesn't mean that you have to be um, a game changer or a renegade or the most successful CEO in the world or whatever. It's just about what you want, what what lights you up, what is it that, that fills you full of joy and, and sense of purpose. Because sometimes... We're afraid to chase after we want because we get stuck in how we're going to make it happen and how am I going to pay the bills and what if, what if, what if, and all of those are self-limiting beliefs and, and limitations. So it's really important that you get really clear about what you want. And then the laurel proximity states that we become the sum of the top five people we spend the most amount of time with. So once you get really clear on what you want, then surround yourself with people who are going to support you to achieve it. And then finally, just don't give up on it. Just keep pursuing it. There's there, And quitting... If you know it's not right, walking away from it is not is not giving up. It's not failure. It's making actually taking the time to realize that what you're doing is maybe not the right way to do things. Because I had a clothing brand for five years, and I was dedicated and committed to making that thing right until I realized once I asked myself some pretty hard questions, it's not the right thing for me to do because I'm not that passionate about it. I don't have the desire to make it successful I haven't surrounded myself with the right people to make it successful so just let it go and allow yourself to open up to other great wonderful opportunities and that's what life does as long as you remain open to it how can people get involved in aim for the stars they can log on to the website aimforthestars.com.au and um, you can become a mentor you can become a donor you can host events at work Um, there's plenty of ways that you can get involved you can tend our events so, uh, yeah, please jump onto the website and have a look at what we're doing because uh, we're changing people's lives and we're creating future leaders. Lane Beachley, I don't want to let you go. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you, Caroline. And that is all from the Tiger Shark of the Waves, Lane Beachley. Stay tuned next week to hear Master of the Markets, Chris Tate, on what the markets have done so far in 2017. I'm Caroline Stephen. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to TalkingTrading.com.au with Caroline Stephen. Make sure you are subscribed to this website to receive the very latest market views, commentary and expert opinion. Tune in next week as we've got a bumper show planned. Bye for now. The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regard to your own situation.